the way that I think about composability is like, can somebody extend the work somebody else has done? And I think that that's going to lead to a sort of like a Cambrian explosion in the same way that in Venice, like the ability to reach lots of different cultures and aggregate those and remix them and combine them created significantly more refined products. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. And we have a great guest today, Kara Wu, investor at A16Z. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm super excited. This is my first podcast ever, I think. So I'm I'm a little bit aggravated that my voice is kind of hoarse. But maybe one day you guys will find out what I actually sound like. <laughs> Are you just coming back from South by Southwest or anything like that? No, I'm a bit traveled out. We had a team offsite and it was just, you know, long days, Miami, Miami. And I got back and I was like, wow, I need to drink water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that we could have you on as your first podcast. Maybe we need to mint an NFT to commemorate that. I know. <laughs> you have a lot of commentary on the Web3 and NFT space online. I've been following you on Twitter for a while. I know you got a, a mutant ape on Twitter too, so that caught my eye. But yeah, I just like to walk through a lot of things that I think you're passionate about. DAOs, gaming, you know, music NFTs, it seems to be your jam. Yeah, yeah. To start off, could you please walk us through, you know, how you got into crypto and what really led you to work on the crypto team that you are on today? I went down the crypto rabbit hole in 2017, but I think I was primed for it a little bit earlier than that. I think so. I studied math, computer science, and economics at Harvard, and I think most people who have that background like come to crypto from a point of intellectual curiosity. For me, it was a little bit more visceral than that. I went to boarding school, and my parents live overseas, so early on, I was like managing my own finances, and it was so clear to me that the traditional financial system was broken. It's like systemically tilted against young people. And, you know, there were moments when not having immediate access to liquidity meant that I was like, you know, stranded in various cities, had to borrow money from friends, like hit with overdraft fees. And so I think, you know, by the time I dropped out for the first time, which was in 2017, I was totally broke, moved to San Francisco, was working for a startup that was pivoting into crypto. And that gave me, you know, the opportunity to meet a ton of really, really smart people. I ended up going back to school when the market bottomed out and, you know, I got really technical, started to understand the design principles in a, you know, more precise and sophisticated way. And, you know, I think that made it possible for me to work as an engineer and as a product manager um, in the gaming space. I dropped out again in um, 2020. I was working for Apple full time, first on search systems and then with game developers in the App Store and Apple Arcade. And then the epic Fortnite lawsuit hit. And like, I woke up one day and I was like, wow, I work with um, game developers who hate my guts and also rely on me for their livelihoods. 
And to me, it was it was like a leading indicator that it was the end of a market innovation cycle. And it was like time to move back to the Web3 developer thesis, which was taking off again because of DeFi summer. And so quit my job, cold emailed Ariana Simpson, who's a general partner at the firm. And I've been working as an investment partner on the team for about a year now. Mm, that's an awesome story, especially like how you felt some of the pressures from the current financial system, like during your upbringing. I've been trying to find a really good and like succinct answer for how does Web3 help help bring like economic freedom to people, maybe even especially in America, where a lot of times some of those things aren't felt by everyone here, you know, transferring money, access to banks, like those kind of basic financial principles are you know, by a lot of people in this country, maybe taken for granted. But how do you see like crypto really providing like value here and not just being, you know, part of the the capitalism system that may extract value from certain communities? I think about this a lot. You know, a lot of people also discover crypto when they go to countries that suffer from hyperinflation. I think one of the reasons why very early on before the big NFT boom, you know, I felt super strongly about Web3 gaming was because like third party trading of in-game assets for real money has existed as long as games have existed. Like the first commercial broadband internet MMOs were invented in like 1997 and like I think, you know, four years later, the market for third-party trading was like $2 billion, which is a lot. And like what you saw in like 2009 was that folks in Venezuela were using RuneScape gold coins as a more stable currency than the Bolivar. And so I think, you know, I think when people talk about Web3 gaming and 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 sort of like the sort of Ponzi-nomics of a, a lot of crypto, they forget that, you know, gaming is something that, you know, folks in emerging markets, Southeast Asia, Latin America adopt first. And their interest in those games is not disrupted by the fact that, you know, third party trading of in-game assets is most rampant in those countries. Just to go back to the question, like, how does this help people from all economic classes? It's like, you know, folks who are early to a trend, like kids in their bedroom who are finding artists early on SoundCloud and suddenly able to, you know, buy their NFTs and see huge price appreciation for having discovered those things first can really like, like start to see upside from their ingenuity, kick off like fascinating and interesting careers much earlier on. I also think that like, you know, it's like the arts, creative endeavors are really inaccessible to people because of the financial instability like less than 1% of artists, musicians can make a living through like streaming on Spotify. And that I think is like gating even just like upstream, like the funnel of people who could potentially be artists, right? I think being able to make a living in music, even if you only have a hundred true fans who love what you're doing, will make music and art a lot more accessible. I think it, like 10X or more of like, like creative input from like underrepresented communities. And I'm hoping that there's a creative renaissance as a result. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that answer. And I, I find myself just trying to walk through that with like people in my life. 
as I get questions about, you know, the price of X is just so high and uh, only certain people can buy that. And I'm trying to really articulate why this is a, you know, an open economy that can be participated by all and then also support people who have maybe been underrepresented in certain fields. And right now we're really seeing that with some of the areas you mentioned, gaming, also like artists, music. And I'm super interested to see that trend continue as we move, you know, past art and find other ways that like these innovations are going to help people who have also, you know, struggled to meet that like economic meets, you know, passion gap. But so we're going to dive into more gaming and what questions in a minute here. To start off, though, I'd like to really start high level. And this question kind of comes from a, an article I, I read of yours online. And you talk about the city of Venice in it. And I thought it was an interesting example in, in comparison to what we can learn from an innovation standpoint from the city and how that can be extrapolated to Web3. Could you please you know, explain what like your takeaway was from the city of Venice and how you take that like historical example to what we're seeing today? I'm going to be reductive here. History is complicated. It's revisionist. It's told by the winners. So that's a disclaimer. I think one of the things that made Venice great was relatively democratized ownership. It was not democratized at the scale that like we're, we're trying to talk about. It was like slightly below the highest level of aristocracy could suddenly own a piece of certain businesses, right? I mean, it, it 10xed the number of people who were able to participate in industry, the number of languages that people spoke, right, when they were doing business. I think the other thing that that city was really great at was resource aggregation and distribution, which owed, I think, in, in large part to their natural resource advantage as a port city. Blockchains give you two things. One is financialization, which if you do it well, can mean incentives. And then the other is composability. And like, what do we mean by composability is like, it, it makes the design space for developers a lot richer. And so the sort of the model just to like, ground this in like an example is like the MIT license, you know, Creative Commons license, some of the greatest innovations of all time have come out of like the MIT license, which is the most used sort of like copyright model of all time. Like the X window system, Ruby on Rails, Node.js, jQuery. The way that I think about composability is like, can somebody extend the work somebody else has done? And I think that that's going to lead to a sort of like a Cambrian explosion in the same way that in Venice, like the ability to reach lots of different cultures and aggregate those and remix them and combine them created significantly more refined products. And so, you know, I think like the way that I would describe this in the context of DAOs and NFTs is that like folks are coming from all backgrounds. They're combining like like financial resources to buy the constitution, they're mobilizing and able to distribute direct to an audience of true fans, right? And so you don't actually need that many people, that many true fans, if they care about it 100%. And so I think like direct ownership of the community, direct incentivization for each of the members of that community to like proliferate the thesis, to proliferate the like the NFTs, the creative work, the music that's created in those communities. 
I think that's sort of like where my mind went to when when we drew the Venice comparison. Yeah, no, I I love that description a lot. And the quote here that I just wrote down as I'm taking notes, can you said about composability, can somebody extend the work someone else has done? That's a really great way to think about it. And I'm definitely going to be using that description when when talking about composability moving forward. And you know, you also mentioned a lot of innovations that have come from some of those like MIT license you mentioned. And a lot of the things you mentioned were actually pretty technical, like Ruby on Rails and a couple other things, right? And I would imagine that the just broader population isn't thinking about or doesn't even realize that some of these like technical innovations that are happening in the background of the applications we use day to day, you know, come from that kind of concept. And so when we talk about how Web3 and NFTs give us this version of composability that can be built off of, you know, I wonder if some of that gets missed a little bit because I also like come from a, a technical background and studied like computer science in college. And so, you know, when you throw out those words, they, they mean something to me. Yeah. I wonder how many composable examples there are in just like broader life. The first one I thought of is like cooking TikToks or back in the day, I think it was Buzzfeed used to have a lot of different recipe videos and it showed how you can make, you know, another meal with the ingredients you might have in your fridge already, you know, there's probably a ton of composable examples just across different industries that aren't just like tech focused. I mean, TCP IP, the entire internet was like this battle that was waged against sort of like centralized forces while the sun is coming out. And what TCP IP allowed you to do was make, you know, like local servers to test on, right? Like local access networks for gamers to play on well before broadband internet was, was sort of proliferated. Like jQuery is is one of the things that, you know, came out of the MIT license. That's in every single browser application today. Like every single person is using open licenses. And so I think like when we talk about composability, it's like, you know, can somebody iterate on the learnings of somebody else, which is like sort of like the whole endeavor, <laughs> like the whole creative endeavor. Wow. You know. That, and honestly, this is making me more more excited about some of the conversations around like IP and decentralized applications than I already am. Just your statement around how you know something is being used by everyone who's using the internet that came out of this you know concept of being able to build on top of. It's a powerful. It, it can really have like powerful network effects. So another question I had for you was about also in this article, and we'll make sure to link this below in the description. You talk about how truly disruptive innovation often looks like toys at the outset. And it goes on, I have another quote in front of me, and emerges when groups of smart people get together and collaborate on hobbies they're passionate about. So I'm curious to hear from you, and, and you might have touched on it already, but what are some things we're seeing today that looks like a toy now that you think will be very disruptive tech in the coming years? Yeah, so I think like music NFTs are a good example of this. We are investors in in Royal and Sound and and sort of like I'll call out Sound. Sound looks like a toy. It takes the idea of like the comments that you can leave on SoundCloud and sells those comments as NFTs. So if you own an NFT, you own the canonical comment at a certain timestamp. That looks like a toy, right? But I think the powerful thing is here, like my my dream is for all the media to be free. 
like all the streaming to be free. And instead, like artists, I hope will be able to monetize from the true fans who like want to own the ephemera, who want to own like the adjacencies. And like one, I hope that that's going to like democratize access to like creative material, right? And I think the other thing is I, I hope that like artists will be able to capture the value under the curve for the different preference levels and the different sort of demand levels for each, like each fan. Like the way it works today is streaming platforms value the attention of every fan the same. You get a linear value capture under the curve, like a linear integral. And sorry if I'm getting too technical here. And no, this is but great. The, the reality is you've got some true fans who will spend anything to hang out with an artist, anything to get a little bit closer. And their demand is all the way up here. So the real demand curve is is more like this, this triangle. You're not capturing any of this for an artist. Like that's value that the artist should be able to like make a living off of instead of just capturing whatever the distribution platform decides is the monetization strategy. So my dream is that the media is free and that we give away the collateral. And I hope that that's going to be much better for users. And I hope that's going to be much better for, for creators too. That's really interesting. And just to clarify for listeners, if we weren't following that full explanation, I think when you say that in like traditional web two streaming, the value captures linear, it's like if you have for every additional stream, you're going to get an additional fraction of a penny. And so it's, it's just stacking the same. And so if I love Let's let's call out Snoop Dogg because he just dropped an NFT on Sound yesterday. If I if I'm the biggest fan in the world of Snoop Dogg and I listen to his song on Spotify, he gets the same amount of like money per stream as the per like my dad who doesn't like Snoop Dogg at all, but maybe happens to listen to his on Spotify. Yet yesterday, like I bought a Snoop Dogg NFT, so that that value capture. Yeah, I, I was get able one. to get one. Oh my god, I was so pissed. <laughs> I got really fast trigger fingers. I do have one and, you know, maybe we can broker a NFT trade live on the pod. <laughs> yeah, it was cool to see. And I'm actually glad you brought up sound because I'm trying to figure out right now is like the price I paid yesterday for the music NFT. I mean, I think that Snoop is I'm a big hip hop fan. I've got a I've got like a photo behind me of like from a couple concerts that I DJed and emceed with with one of my best friends who raps and I'm trying to figure out like, is the money I spent on that? Is it really because I think that in the long run, that NFT is going to be worth you know, the same amount or more? Or is it because I'm just here supporting like the ecosystem development and like music NFTs and just the experimentation? So you say it looks like a toy now, but do you see that when, it, when we talk about value for the, we talked about value for the artist. What about value for like the consumer and the fan? Do you think that uh, the money being spent right now is kind of, you know, equal to what we're seeing from the artist side in terms of being able to capture that in the long term? Or do you think it's really more, you know, let's, we're, we're supporting something we think is cool and we're kind of willing to spend discretionary funds on things we think are cool versus investments? Yeah. I mean, I think it can be both, right? I think today sound is selling vibes. I love the vibes. I'm here for the vibes. <laughs> But, you know, what I would say is, like, imagine if you were the one who discovered Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish was discovered through a small platform called Platoon that was later acquired by Apple because it sort of gained cultural prominence for having discovered Billie Eilish, right? And so I think, imagine now that you were the kid who found 
Billie Eilish's Ocean Eyes or whatever song blew her up to begin with. You bought one of those NFTs because you were interested. You bought it at a super low price. Now people stream Ocean Eyes like millions of times per week, right? And so I think like naturally that NFT is going to be worth more. There's a causal loop here where if if I own, you know, a small under the radar artists NFT and I am like, I think kids in their bedrooms are going to be like A&R. If I own that NFT, I'm going to shill that song out to all of my friends. I'll be like, listen to this song. This is the greatest song I've ever heard. And then, then I'm going to go tell my neighbor's dad, who is a music producer, hey, you've got to listen to this thing. Or I'm going to tell my neighbor's neighbor's dad, who is like, you know, a film producer, you've got to put this in your next film, right? Like, I think that like, there's a causal effect where I am passionate about something. I say I want to participate in the financial upside. But like in the like in the same breath, I'm going to try to create value out of that song for others. Yeah, totally. I I think that is so cool when you're talking about kids being ARs. It's been interesting watching Spotify's algorithm become like the ANR. And then after that, uh, Spotify playlister is kind of holding because getting your song on playlists on Spotify is such a help for the algorithm boost, you know, playlisters start becoming A&R. And then in the future, it can be actually the listeners and the fans that can help, you know, project an artist's career. That's a trajectory that I'd definitely be here for. Good talk about music NFTs. I'd like to pick your brain about DAOs as well. You seem to be super stoked on everything DAOs. Can you kind of tell me why that gets you so excited? And then maybe we can talk about a couple of examples that really stand out to you. So like my, my core thesis here is you take products that have amazing product market fit and terrible business models, right? Like, like business models that have like really problematic or like deeply misaligned incentive structures. Web3 is exciting to me because you can fix that alignment problem with like permissionless, trustless blockchains. What it allows you to do is push value out to like the furthest extremities of a network. Let me ground this in example. So esports is a great fit for something like a DAO structure. Esports has amazing product market fit. The best esports teams have hundreds of millions of weekly viewers who bring, you know, attention, monetization, like spectator activity to a lot of these games. They've got tens of millions of true fans. And almost all of them either lose money or have razor thin profits. They took an already shitty business model, which was sports, and then they got rid of the media rights, which were the only thing making sports money because streaming is expected to be free. And so like you you think about like why is that the case? It's because like the publishers and slash distributors, like, you know, I love Riot, but Riot is like an example here. Like this whole category of like verticalized distribution pays those esports teams such insignificant royalties and like licensing fees that it's almost offensive. It's like a million dollars a year for like the top performing esports team. And so I think like it points to a couple of things, right? It's like the teams don't own the, game, own the games and the players don't own the teams. It's a really natural idea that like if the games themselves are decentralized, that you can own the tokens in a game that like the governance tokens and sort of have an influence over how the game evolves, the rules of the game. If you can own assets in the game, if the players themselves can own part of the team that they actively contribute to, 
I think that's a really like good fit, right? There's a part of esports that's already kind of decentralized. And I think like DAOs make it the case that like every piece of the pie, every part of the value chain is compensated in a way that like accrues value proportionally, hopefully to like the contributions to the value chain. Yeah. Interesting example there comparing it to the esports teams. I, I hadn't thought of that one. I hadn't really considered that example yet. And I know you are, or your your broader team is investing in friends with benefits. And, you know, this is a super popular DAO that's come across my radar. And I've been meaning to fill out an application personally to apply. But I'd like to know from you, like, what makes friends with benefits, you know, a, a novel example of a DAO and something that you're really, you know, bullish on going forward? Maybe I'll I'll take a second to sort of like cover like what Friends with Benefits is. It's like a crypto social club, I think is the reductive take. It started out as like a group chat for artists and creatives who are crypto curious. And um, it's a self-organized internet native community that is sort of looking like a, a, a digital city. And they're becoming like the ultimate cultural membership. I think they're sort of like Venice, right? They're the port city of Web3. They're introducing a really culturally influential class to crypto by putting human capital first. The rise of FWB coincided with the NFT boom, where for the first time, like your first interaction with crypto could be walking into a bar or attending your friend's concert. That's really powerful. Crypto used to be just for nerds. I hosted a party at Zero Bond with friends with benefits, and I looked around me and I was like, oh my God, all of these people are so much cooler than me. And and like that was like, I don't know, it was like a super stark difference from from 2017. From an artist's perspective, the the idea is like hopefully the network effects are very strong. And so today, like artists who have big names are able to sell out their NFT collections, they tap on their existing fans, but somebody who isn't as high profile already, like how do you solve that discoverability problem? Well, now imagine that you're in a very tightly knit social club of other artists and maybe Justin Bieber, somebody like really big is in there, right? Like Justin Bieber discovered Madison Beer. Now imagine that this like super close knit group of people who are at different stages in their careers can assemble resources together, decides to signal boost a new artist in that community. That's a very powerful signal. And so I think, you know, hopefully the network effects are very strong. Yeah, I, I think like what's novel about Friends with Benefits was for me, it was like the sort of canonical social DAO, which now is like spreading like wildfire. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that, you know, Friends with Benefits specifically is just for someone who's in the like creative music artist world? Or is there like other roles for people interested? It originated as that thesis. Now it's much broader. Like being able to put to mind meld somebody who is deeply creative with somebody who is technical, like that's very powerful. Friends with Benefits is already creating a lot of different products that are technical in nature, but like solve real problems that the DAO is facing. So token gating is a good example. You can go to one of their parties, but you have to have a certain NFT or you have to have certain tokens. And that's a model that like tons of other DAOs are, are now adopting. And so I think like the ability to combine resources to like push a project to execution in like a community owned way is, is like, it's sort of the, the dream state. <laughs> yeah. Talking about parties and things that Friends with Benefits is kind of 
iterating and innovating on with that token gated model makes me think about what we were talking about earlier with what things look like a toy today and oftentimes when i'm talking about nfts to friends they're like oh what i need this to get into another party and i kind of want to push back and say you know right now we're seeing access look like parties as people are going to conferences there's a lot of learning going on there's a lot of excitement building up but that access can look very different in the future and we're just first starting this experimentation with you know what you mentioned parties right do you kind of see that similarly how do you respond to someone who says oh access for a party i'm not too interested in that but then internally you're thinking well this could be access for so much more right one of the crazy things about permissionless blockchains and this combines with the point about composability is like a kid in bangladesh who has an internet connection can contribute open source eips to ethereum like ethereum improvement proposals and like contribute to the most significant like decentralized computer in the world that's crazy right like that's real access the other thing that's really interesting here is because people who discover other things have an incentive to proliferate the thing that they discovered or have ownership over. It's a, a very powerful distribution network. So like if you are like a kid who just built some like analytics layer on top of Axie Infinity, or, or say you made another mini game for those axes, which are NFTs, and one person discovers it, right? They go shill it out to all their friends. And then that person shills it out to all of their friends. And so I think that's why you see some of the like wildfire growth for certain projects in very short amounts of time. Just to call out one of our investments, Axie Infinity, it's this Web3 game where you own your little Axie characters as NFTs. And it's a card battle game. So you assemble them in like sort of like optimal combinations and you battle against other teams of axes. And this game in July just took off, like absolutely took off to the point where within a couple of months, like players who were playing Axie Infinity started to create so much value that it became 2% of the GDP of the Philippines in a couple of months. Like, I don't, I don't know that you can see that kind of like distribution happen so quickly so to me that that like that's access like one person needs to discover the thing that somebody has built yeah yeah i did not know that uh axie infinity you know contributed that large to the gdp that's a crazy stat it is <laughs> go fact check it though <laughs> <laughs> i've had a conversation about this on a, on a different pod with a guest and we were talking about how like you know play to earn kind of becomes this like play to live like it's just life at that point you know when everything you're doing is gamified and and has some financial component to it since you brought up gaming i think i'd love to transition to you know more gaming focused topics i appreciate bringing up axie i think axie is really the biggest example right now of decentralized games taking on some of the big you know game publishers out there in terms of users right i saw you mention on a twitter thread something called the consolidation curve that was happening within the gaming industry. And I hadn't heard of that before, but could you please like describe that? And and is that consolidation curve why we're seeing so much backlash from gaming companies uh, against you know NFTs and, and Web3 
I feel like I've seen a lot of negative comments from traditional gaming companies about, you know, the combination of NFTs and, the, and metaverses. So I'll, I'll like very quickly describe the consolidation curve. This is probably something we can also link. It's this well-documented phenomenon in most industries. There's tons of data points and a very long time span. Like the time series is really great here. Typically, it takes around 25 years for an industry to mature to the point of 70 to 90% consolidation among the top three firms. And at that point, you know, innovation looks very different. In order to continue to grow, they have to be a lot more aggressive. These firms have to be a lot more aggressive about monetizing their consumers and people who want to win, right, against enormous amounts of, of capital and resources have to do something very different, right? And so I think like indie game studios right now are facing pressure from all sides. It's hard to compete with big money. It's hard to compete with fast follow development, preferential cross-promotion, and when the platform becomes the largest publisher, studios lose their key point of leverage, which before was cross-platform distribution deals. So like a good example is Fortnite. They were able to dominate culture by issuing publishers and making themselves deliberately available on every platform that games can be played on. So now it's been almost exactly 25 years since the first commercial broadband MMO was released, which was Ultima Online in 1997. Part of the consequence of this is like, Content gets funneled to vertically owned distribution channels, like Elder Scrolls being exclusive to the Xbox, for example. Just to try to understand what this looks like, it's like the same content balkanization that you see in television, where you have to now subscribe to every streaming service because of verticalization and exclusive media rights. I think Web3 is a new point of leverage that you know enables the most innovative and risk-taking game developers to circumvent that asymmetric advantage that these like, you know, consolidated and verticalized publishers now have. The biggest thing here is like they can own their community, like direct user acquisition and community engagement. Today, it looks like Discord groups. But, you know, tomorrow, it looks like having all this on-chain data when the identity primitive, like on-chain identity primitive is more, you know, mature. It's being able to like, you know, really like take the Fortnite example to its logical extreme, which is bringing universal availability down to the object level. So like axes can be bought, sold and played anywhere. That's very powerful, even as a distribution mechanism for Axie Infinity, right? The other thing is, I'm like a decentralization maxi in some ways. It's like open economies provide ownership incentives that drive like composable esports, creator economies, incentivized modding, like guild growth. I think, yeah. So like all of these things bring in people who are invested in the game in a way that is very different and hopefully much more powerful than what we've seen in, in Web2 gaming. You talk a lot about why Web3 gaming and like these decentralized games can grow and have like a lot of cool features that users may want. I'd like to almost flip and talk about like the user side here. And, you know, I have this friend who games all the time and I told him about, you know, NFTs and, and gaming and that trend rising and kind of threw a couple games his way, Axie being one of them and a couple other small ones. And something he came back to me with was that he really wasn't interested in the whole like financial side and combining those two. But then he, he tweeted the other day 
just like two days ago. The amount I've spent on my computer hardware is bad enough. The last thing Claire, which is his girlfriend, needs to know how much I've spent on in-game cosmetics for a game I play for free. So he's talking about like, I play this game for free, yet I spend so much on in-game cosmetics that he can't take elsewhere to other games or to other like metaverse you know, applications. What would you say to the gamer who, you know, who engages in activities that I think you and me would, you know, see falling in line with broader, you know, NFT and and Web3 adoption and excitement, but who maybe isn't quite like tuned in to why this might be interested to them and also may not be interested in the earn side of this? Simple answer is like what we'll take to awake players to this opportunity, like hopefully there's just like a great AAA game, right? <laughs> and like show not tell is like, like probably I think the biggest kicker, right? Like a great game comes onto the market, a big, you know, esports influencer starts playing the game. People are engaged. People are like, what is this game? And hopefully they don't even have to know until like a couple of hours in that they're playing a web three game. I think from there on, it'll accelerate quickly, right? In some ways, Asia is actually already there. You know, I talked to like the biggest South Korean game publishers. They're all doing full pivots to Web3. And like they're putting their thousands of game developers all in on Web3 games. And like Asia has always led game adoption by, you know, five to 10 years. They were ahead on free-to-play. There was huge backlash to free-to-play games because people thought it was going to be pay-to-win And so on some level, it's like your investment thesis could literally just be, let me tag every developer, every stellar developer in the world and see where they're going and just like blindly invest. Like that could be a great investment strategy. And so on some level, you know, you look at these South Korean mobile publishers who are actually like creating a lot of games for the West, like soon, like that's just what's going to be available because the best developers and the most interesting developers in the world are just building there. And at some point you won't even notice. And so I think that's one idea. I think like from the, like, how do people think about the opportunity to earn side? Like people are already like kids in their bedrooms are like, you know, amateur developers for Roblox games and they're raking in money. That's crazy. Kids are streaming on Twitch from their bedrooms and they're making a lot of money. Kids are winning Fortnite tournaments and like treating that as like a real, like, you know, path to becoming a streamer. Right. So I think this is already sort of proof of concept happening in some of the composable layers that already exist on top of games. But in, in web three games, it's, it's sort of the one step further. Like a lot of these sort of um, web 2.5 proofs of concept are really great. Like actually just one more example is like betting in games creates another layer. And what you see is like, it drives way more engagement in sports and every single distribution channel for sports are now trying to also include sports betting into their stack. And you and you see betting coming into more of the gaming like play experiences. All sorts of spectator components. The goal state in my head for like web3 games is games that at the base layer give you enough tools such that you can remix, make the game interesting and extensible so that you can create complex interactive states. You can build, you can be an architect in the game. You can create a mini game within the game. You can 
like where the expressive richness of the game is high enough such that somebody can combine digital objects in ways that are better, that produce value for people. A lot of these games are and have been virtual economies, right? Like, you know, World of Warcraft, Ultima Online, EVE Online. And if you think about how economies grow with a fixed money supply, you can take economic growth and normalize for money supply. If the economy grows 12%, you've normalized for 2% inflation, you still have a 10 point delta, right? So like that doesn't answer the question of like, how do economies grow? What is actually happening is that producers figure out how to do more with less. So chips get smaller, um, Moore's law, chips get faster. That's how economies grow. The, the cycle of a dollar through the economy, the velocity gets faster. And so my hope is that the components, the building blocks of these virtual economies get complex and, and like expressive enough such that people can do more with less within those games. And that's like how you know that value is like people are driving value in these games. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing. <laughs> no, no yet. Good, good explanation. And, you know, on, on top of that, I, I, I've seen you talk a lot about ownership too. And that's just like a core foundational pillar of, of everything Web3 is not just being able to play these games, but then own elements of the game. And then you mentioned composability, take those things you own to other games you play, other experiences, and and that could unlock benefits to you as a, a player. Super cool. And I, another thought that popped in my head was like, right now, I feel like we don't really view the like youth kids as... We don't really view them in a financial way, like kids having jobs. There's you know laws around how young you can be before you can start working. And oftentimes I'd say we kind of discredit a, a kid's ability to earn and say, oh, just you're young. So therefore, you can't have a job that makes X amount or you can't apply to this job. But all of a sudden, with these play to earn you know, avenues, really the ability for someone young to have substantial income is now you know created in a way we haven't really experimented with before i see a group of people as i'm saying this like now you know call out for me from one side and say that's not a good thing and i can see another group saying you know that is a good thing giving you know power and empowering people to earn but at the same time what happens when we let everybody earn you know you can't stop certain age groups so I don't know, just, just a cool thought to, to think about, especially as kids are becoming like older and smarter faster than ever before just because of the internet. You know, they can learn from people around the world all the time on their phone, whereas, you know, a generation ago, not possible. So how that evolves will be interesting to me. So my, my friend Legion wrote a lot about sort of the passion economy. Hopefully these are passions. Hopefully kids are having fun. And the idea that they can earn money is like, a sort of a nice side effect. But also it's like a lot of kids go into, you know, college and later life and they're like, I don't know what I'm interested in. I don't know what I'm passionate about. And they spend a lot of time stumbling into things and, you know, even just like making it possible for somebody to like have a passion early on and say to themselves, wow, this could be a reasonable career, right? Like I don't have to be an investment banker. I don't have to be a management consultant. Like I could just do the thing that I love and make money. That's pretty crazy. Hopefully that's like, I think, you know, the book case. In a, in a country where talking about finding your passion is, has been the motto for so long. It's the American dream. <laughs> yeah. The, Ameri the American dream is to play to earn. Play and earn. 
play, play and, and earn. earn. <laughs> True. There's both can happen and that's not just earning is the focus. I'd like to wrap up and do our web one, two, web three and ask you a couple questions here. So first one, then you, you know, you just mentioned a friend of yours in this space who is influential, but who is an influential web three creator, entrepreneur, collector that's really inspired or educated you? So Lee is one, Jesse Walden, who used to be a partner on this team and now runs Variant alongside Lee, was another one. He's just like a very lucid writer who informed a lot of my thinking around progressive decentralization. But the one I, I want to specifically call out is a creator. My friend, People Pleaser, who has a name that is not the People Pleaser that I'm not going to dox, was my very first friend in crypto. And she had just sort of blown up when I met her last year. But now she's like way more prominent from a mainstream perspective. She's raised like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for charity. You know, there's a whole DAO like dedicated to collecting her art. She just released a decentralized like video platform. And I just like I'm constantly inspired by the work she does. It's a very different motion from investing. And I think it grounds me in like, what is the like cutting edge? What's the bleeding edge of like, the work that creators are doing, I think staying connected to like creators to customers is, is really important. And it's also just like, it's really amazing to, to see her career evolve while mine is too. And, you know, just like, I love seeing the homies win together. <laughs> totally. You know, so cool. And thinking about who's your first web three friend and making those connections along the way, it's, it's a good like reflection point to look back at yourself too, to see how you've grown. So awesome. If you're listening, definitely check out People Pleaser. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. And then favorite NFT. What's your favorite NFT? I'm not going to choose one. So we both have mutants. I think I've just grown attached to my mutant ape just because I've set it as my PFP. There's like an identity thing there. I do think at some point I'm going to do a face reveal on Twitter. I think a lot of people think I'm a man. I get a lot of like, Mr. Wu, Mr. Kara, sir. I mean, I like the idea that like, as a man, like I've held my own against all the other men. Like I like that. But at some point I would like to not be misgendered. So my mutant I'm attached to, but we'll probably let go as a PFP soon. When you say let go as a PFP, you know, as you become attached to it, you know, are you ever going to sell it? You know, how do you, how do you evaluate that sell thing? And, and maybe it's just personal and it comes down to, you know, life, you know, life finance as you need to pick and choose where your money is allocated. But do you, do you really view this as a, a super long-term hold or are you kind of playing it day by day, week to week? Well, I'm lucky to have streams of income that are not NFT flipping. So at the moment, I'm not considering selling it. Who knows? I think a lot of these are, are mementos. So so another good example of one that I keep, that I could have sold for, for a lot of money, but just like keep as a, as a, as a memory is loot. Loot is my Zoom background all the time. So just to like give context, Loot is, was this like sort of cognitive breakthrough in NFTs. It was literally just a list of items. It's like sort of derivative of loot bags in video games where like you collect these loot bags and, and you use the different components that you find in the loot to, you know, craft other game items that are maybe more high value that you can use in different sort of game loops. I think that was a cognitive breakthrough, even though it sort of, you know, fell off. It was a cognitive breakthrough because I think it was like the first example of like real interoperability and the most degrees of expressive freedom for people to build games with those loot items and like really bringing the essence of a Web3 game like 
down to the object level ownership. Maybe there were too many degrees of freedom, right? Maybe there were too many things you can do when you just release like bags of loot into the world. But Shields is like, I think sort of the next step where they've released really sophisticated APIs and documentation for anyone to go use those, you know, assets in a game. And and maybe those are sort of like instructions and sort of my, I was like running around looking for the metaverse interoperability layer for a while. And now I sort of think like the NFT projects themselves should just say, you know, here is the standard API that you use. You can render it in any way that you want, but we're going to give you this JSON file with all of the characteristics and parameters. And like, here are some recommended ways that you use the board apes in your game, right? Like, I think that's going to be very powerful. And like, instead of like each metaverse trying to proliferate its unique assets across everyone else's games, which I think has an incentive alignment problem. Instead, it's like, hey, users themselves like these NFT projects. How do we find a way of like making the games themselves interoperate with them? Yeah, yeah, totally. And with loot and other, you know, projects like that, it's hype can people get really excited about these ideas and the potential. And then after after that, you know, that brain blast moment happens, people have to go in and build. And I feel like that's a little bit in the loot example. You know, now we need people to build games and experiences and that takes time. So yeah, we'll see. Maybe loot makes a comeback. But very cool that you've got a loot bag. And the last question is in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that we're not even thinking about yet? Five years is a long time in crypto years. So like I'm not gonna make any sort of predictions <laughs> because I'm very likely to be wrong. Like game innovation has a long history of deriving from like actual infrastructure. So like, let me give you some examples. Like PC, like GPU innovation made side-scrolling games like Mario, Super Smash Bros possible on the PC for the first time before you had to do it on consoles with specialized GPUs. The ability to run function calls in databases and enforce game server validity on the server itself rather than via client server syncs made the modern MMO possible. Like distributed systems technology made MMOs possible. I think blockchains give you a new kind of computing paradigm that I think will open an entirely new genre of, I hope, I don't, I don't know, I hope will make an entirely new genre of games. Like maybe MMO on steroids or something like we can't even fathom at this point. This is a long game. Right. And there's a lot of optimization that needs to happen today. Like scalability is a problem. But I, I think like, you know, maybe it starts with like game specific L2s where like the L2s themselves are optimized at the bottom of the stack for games. Like today you face contract size limitations, block times. But like you can imagine L2s that really like take advantage of shared execution layers as like a prerequisite to interoperability. And then sort of once you have that base level infrastructure, you can do like create really sophisticated developer tools, great abstractions, agent abstractions, like the ability to handle smart contracts in the background, plug and play user generated content, incentivize modding. Like I think there are gonna be like primitives that we can't even fathom today, right? That create new kinds of gaming that today look like really programmery games like Scrapes, but eventually start to look a little bit more like mainstream accessible games. So like a couple of these primitives are like programmable identity, distribution, curation, asset ownership at the object level. I'm not sure what really creative people will do with those things, but like, you know, 
I'm really, really excited to see what happens. <laughs> totally. Beautiful. You know, yeah, really, really interesting take there. And when it comes to like identity and, you know, digital property right ownership and stuff, it's something Unstoppable Domains is really thinking a lot about. And, you know, hopefully we find ourselves integrating with more, you know, game makers down the road. So thanks so much for, you know, all the in-depth thoughts and, you know, analysis and takes you gave us on Web3 NFTs gaming. I know I learned a lot. Could you just please let everyone know how they can connect with you online after listening to the pod? I'm on Twitter as Wukara, W-U-C-A-R-R-A. Hopefully one day I have Kara Wu, <laughs> but today is not that day. You can find me at karawu.com. I'm on the A16Z team page. Please feel free to reach out. I have my DM, DMs open and I do my best to check. I'm not amazing at it, but I will try hard for you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you to everybody listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you, Kara. And if you learned something today, please drop a like on YouTube if that's where you're watching. Subscribe if you're listening on Spotify or Apple. Following the podcast and leaving a review really helped so much so we can continue reaching more people interested in Web3 and keep on educating. So with that, I will see you next week and I'll see you in the metaverse. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much, Josh. This was so fun. You're welcome. Bye. hope you've enjoyed this episode of the unstoppable podcast if something we said today resonated with you please leave us a review subscribe and share this with your friends and remember this conversation doesn't have to end here tweet us your questions thoughts and ideas to unstoppable web i look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening